0: Oh, class. I just Solve. got that. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yeah, I mean, you know what? That's a, That's a good friend of mine is, uh, no, I guess he's in comp lit at Brown, um, But you should take a course from him, Mark Redfield. Okay. Oh, and um, Jacques Caleb, you should definitely yeah. take a course from him. He's great. Okay. Yeah.
1: I'm good with names. Maybe
0: you want to email it. <laughs> okay, I will. I will. Um, just don't trash the email. Okay. Maybe I'll send you a portal.
1: As long as you don't start it off with, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, you should take a class with my friend. <laughs> well,
0: you'll have to decide in six or seven years whether it was fortunate or not that you went to grad school. Yeah. <laughs> But, okay. I won't be
1: moving back in with my parents. Like. Well,
0: there is that. <laughs> There's no turning
1: back now.
0: <laughs> There's no turning back ever. You're so far weighted in blood. <laughs>
1: yeah. The ocean cannot wash the blood
0: from your hands
1: at this point. Um, hi. 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 I like so, your haircut.
0: Thank you. Uh, just to remind you, you have a vacation next week, so don't come on Tuesday to this class, because most people won't be here and then you'll wonder what's going on. Uh, I realized that I said something that I was trying to figure out why I made this mistake last week. Some of you actually looked um, surprised, but no one said anything. Do you remember the mistake I made on Tuesday? I make a lot of mistakes. I made, I made, a, big, <laughs> I, I, I made a big plot error. and um, so So having made that big plot error, I tried to figure out why I made it. And I think I figured it out, so I think it's interesting. But no one remembers this. Do you remember it? No. You're just thinking, oh, it's all, it's all erroneous. Um, so I said, I think I said that Macduff kills um, young Seward. And uh, that, was a, that was bizarre because, of course, it's Macbeth who kills young Seward. Maybe I didn't say it. Maybe I just dreamt that I made that mistake. But why we'll did I dream we it?
1: We forgot if it,
0: you did say. It. <laughs> yeah, but it's on the podcast. So oh, but it's...
1: didn't you also tell us that if you dream the exact words of something, <laughs> then that means you actually heard it earlier that day? I, I said Freud said that. Oh uh, yes. yeah. <laughs> well, so then you must have actually said it, or heard someone say it, or maybe oh, it was yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you made that error. Okay. <laughs> maybe.
0: Well, at any rate, what I, what um, at some point I thought I thought uh, or thought, thought that I had thought was that we talked about how Macduff uh, says he's not going to fight anyone except Macbeth, that that's Macduff's version of being demonized. And I thought that I'd said parenthetically, but then he kills young Seward, but, but maybe I didn't because uh, obviously it's Macbeth who kills young Seward. But the reason, if at whatever place that confusion um, occurred, which might just be coming to class today and thinking, why did I say that? And maybe I was confused in thinking that I said that. Wherever that mistake occurred, it's because there is a corresponding figure for Macbeth. So Seward is to old Seward and to Malcolm and to Macduff. That is, Seward is on the side of the... uh, of Malcolm's party, Young Seward, um, is to Malcolm's party. I think as Satan, or sometimes pronounced um, Satan uh, like the um, uh, devil, um, possibly pronounced Satan, it's not quite clear, Um, that he is to Macbeth perhaps the equivalent of Young Seward. It's even possible that the two of them could be doubled. Uh, For those of you, we haven't talked about this much in this class, Uh, it will come up in ant Cleopatra, but for those of you who don't know what doubling is, um, I think we did talk about it a little bit, but doubling is when you have one actor playing two roles, and if the actor has a speaking part or two speaking parts, then... You can get an interesting, you can get the audience to feel an interesting connection between the two roles that the actor is playing, and that it's, you know, an obvious example of that in the movies is *The Wizard of Oz*, where the um, Cowardly Lion and the Tin Man and the Straw Man are also people who work on Dorothy's farm, so that when Uh, she wakes up at the end she says and you were there and you and you and it's because they appeared as these figures in the dream and um, Shakespeare's doublings can be really really interesting Uh, for example it's a standard thing to do although it probably Shakespeare wrote it this way but he probably didn't um, play both parts but it's a standard thing to do to have the ghost and Claudius played by the same actor. Mm-hmm. And then the father, the person who claims to be Hamlet's father, and now our cousin Hamlet and our son, uh, is would then be played by the same actor who's also played the ghost of Hamlet's father. And this can justify Hamlet's psychological uncertainty as to... Who his real father is, or what his attitude towards Claudius is, and whether it's an attitude that he's allowing that that he's transferring from his real father. There are all sorts of things that that makes possible. In the most interesting doubling, I think ever, is the doubling of the fool and Cordelia in King Lear. That is that the same actor in this case, Robert Armin would have played both the fool and cordelia and the relationship of the child and the figure who stays loyal to lear the way edgar stays loyal to gloucester edgar calls himself a uh, fool at one point he says bad is the trade that must play fool to sorrow that relationship does something between lear and Cordelia, between the fool and cordelia and um makes us see some of Cordelia in the fool maybe but maybe even more some of the fool in Cordelia and that also explains what's a not sufficiently debated line which is Lear comes in and says and my poor fool is hanged and most footnotes will tell you wrongly in my opinion but most footnotes will gloss that as fool term of endearment for Cordelia and why that would be, why he would call her a fool and treat that as a term of endearment, the, the footnote writers don't say. They just learned it when they were undergraduates and then they thought that's the truth. So don't learn that. Learn that, the, that when the fool is hanged, it's the fool who's hanged. At any rate, um, yeah?
1: Um, I remember you saying- Of characters are doubled, they are not supposed to be ever. And so, like, but if, if what you said is the case, then, like, one argued that, like, it, it's not just like a different social space, rather, right? but it's like a reiteration of a, a, a certain social space, but in a, in a kind of different tone. Or,
0: okay, so say like more the about that.
1: With, like, who and the king and the, the, and the king, like, they, they are different social spaces, right? Yeah.
0: So are you asking technically how it plays out or, no, or the effect I mean, that it has? Uh, the, the effect that it has on how we define a social space? Right, yeah. Okay. So yeah, so if you say that what, when we're talking about how you know that, that there's the end of a scene, it's that one group leaves the stage and another group comes in. And that's why convergence at the end of the play, when everyone who is still alive uh, appears in the last scene, uh, the, there's some exceptions to this, but most living people still appear in the last scene, unless they're doubled, in which case you can't have, generally you can't have both. Um, I think the exception to that rule is Twelfth Night, but I think Twelfth Night is, is very tricky that way. Um, but that if you think of, just to, just to remind us of how that works, is you have different social groups, and nevertheless, they are going to form and reform and reform, so that there will be a group that is around Macbeth let's say, and then um, there'll be another group that will be around Lady Macbeth. Uh, so that that could be a first division, that there's Macbeth who meets the witches and who talks to Duncan. And then Lady Macbeth, where we have a new scene when Lady Macbeth comes in reading a letter and then hears from a servant that the king is coming that very evening. And so now we've had two social groups, one which is, you could say, the group that's been at war, the men who have been at war, and then another social group, which is um, the people in Macbeth's castle, or in, in this case, in Lady Macbeth's castle. Then those two groups combine when Duncan and Macbeth show up in at Macbeth's castle. But what's happened before that is you have two groups, one of which is you could say legally centered on Duncan because he is the highest-ranking um, character in that group. Um, you all know that, that it's a standard thing in a Shakespeare play unless there's a little coda for the highest-ranking person to speak the last lines. Um, so when a play ends, whoever has the last lines, occasionally you'll have someone addressing the audience, but whoever has the last lines within the fiction... That's the highest-ranking person. So the last person speaking, King Lear, anyone? King Lear? Where yeah. No, King Lear's dead. Oh, right. No, Edgar. Edgar. Oh, yes, I remember that. Yeah, because Edgar, like Malcolm, is about to become king. Uh, last person speaking, Macbeth? Malcolm, yes. Um, he calls on each one whom we invite to see us crowned at Scone. Um, so, Matt, so we know that Malcolm is going to be king because not only does he say he's about to be king, but the play says it too, by giving him the last speech. So, Hamlet, anyone? Last speech in Hamlet?
1: No, the, the, the person who takes over it's the like new throne, Fortinbras. yeah, Fortinbras,
0: yeah, who's who's wanted the throne from the get go and finally gets it, yeah. So, back to what you were talking about. Would you consider
1: the operation? Or would you consider that another sort of representation as
0: Mangold's character I think I think that's um, I want to get back to to um, what Sun Kyung was saying, but I think that that's a um, it, that's an interesting question that is that uh, when you see um, an apparition, it's clear would be clear that the apparition is a vision and not the actual person. It's not like Banquo showing up at the banquet. It has to be uh, Banquo as summoned by the witches, but the real Banquo wouldn't be summoned by the witches. Uh, just to give you a background on that, um, there's Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. How many people have read it, if any? So, oh, that's good. Right. You sort of read it? Yeah, I
2: mean like a while ago I kind of skimmed it.
0: Okay. Uh, so in Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, um, as you probably know, um, Faustus, it, it's, it's a kind of uh, at least intellectual source for Macbeth, which is that Faustus gives up his soul in order to have uh, 21 years, I think it's 21 years in Marlowe. It's, it's seven in Good and 21 years in Marlowe, I believe, um, but I might be reversing them. Um, But in order to get what he wants for 21 years, which is to have Mephistopheles, who is a leading devil, um, uh, at his beck and call and able to do um, anything for him. And the reason it's intellectually appropriate to Macbeth is that um, what Faustus is doing is jumping the life to come. And he is betting everything or placing everything or valuing everything upon this bank and shoal of time. As um, um, Homer Simpson says in a hilarious moment, but they're all hilarious, but there's a hilarious moment when Homer Simpson is um, about to uh, buy something at a ruinous interest rate. And he says, I wouldn't have to pay it back for three years what are the odds of that much time ever happening? So that's a Macbeth way to think. That is, what are the odds that all this time will happen? And that's certainly Dr. Faustus's way of thinking. So in Dr. Faustus, uh, Faustus wants, um, uh, he can have anything he wants. And so one of the things he wants is to have sex with Helen of Troy. Um, and uh, the famous line that, it, that he utters when Helen of Troy is brought to him. That's one. That's a familiar line, and it's in fact one of the lines that Shakespeare picks up. Um, but the line in uh, Doctor Faustus is, um, "Was this the face that launched a thousand ships?" Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a that that line is is a line that, that uh, has become familiar, and. But what Mephistopheles explains is that it's not the real Helen and the various other um, famous historical figures whom Faustus meets are not the real figures. They are devils who are playing the roles of the real figures and because they are absolute shapeshifters and can look and be and present as anyone um, that they want. Have you guys seen the Star Trek movie The Undiscovered Country? You guys don't watch Star Trek movies? Are you watching Picard? I watch Star Trek
1: movies.
0: Okay, but, but not the but Undiscovered not Country. One. Okay, it's a, that's a good one. Um, there's a moment, wh- what's the line from? Hamlet. Hamlet, yes. That the fear of something after death, that undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will. Um, it's not the, one
1: with the whales, is it? No, that's Star Trek V. Yeah. Okay. Star Treks are there? That's a lot. A lot. (laughs) New ones, old ones. You
0: should be watching Picard. It's good, at any rate. Um, And that way you can see Patrick Stewart playing Picard as well as Macbeth. At any rate, um, in The Undiscovered Country, there's a woman who... Kirk has been enslaved, and um, there's a woman who offers herself to him. She's a model. I can't remember her name, but she was a one-named model, the real person, um, the actress. And um, Kirk unusually, um, William Shatner in, in, in um, an unusual move doesn't have sex with her when she offers herself to him. And she's surprised and she says, do I not have a pleasing shape? And he says, no, no, it's not that, in that William Shatner way. Uh, pleasing shape. I knew immediately that she was not to be trusted. How did I know? When she says, do I not have a pleasing shape? She's Read- a
1: shape shifter.
0: Yeah, but readers of Hamlet... She is a shapeshifter. It turns out she's a shapeshifter. The spirit that I have seen may be a devil, and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape, says Hamlet. So it's a nice little gesture that uh, the movie is making towards Hamlet and um, telling you that, a ple- that that devils have power to assume a pleasing shape. So that's what happens in Dr. Faustus. That's what happens in um, Hamlet or is potentially happening in Hamlet when Hamlet thinks perhaps this is not his father but a devil who looks like his father and then that would presumably would ha- be what's happening with Banquo when the apparition appears that looks so much like Banquo of course it would be the same actor and there'd be something really interesting about an actor doubling himself at that moment or doubling someone who looks like him as I say, I think that happens in Twelfth Night as well, in a non-supernatural way. But but, but it's an interesting question. But to go back um, to um, the idea of the leading figure within a social group, so that if you say if you say a scene is always going to constitute a kind of social space, which is the space of the characters in that scene, it's also going to be the case that in many, many scenes, maybe the majority of scenes, there will be the alpha um, uh, figure within the scene, uh, the figure who most obviously the king or Lady, Macbe- or the, or Lady Macbeth in Macbeth, um, but the figure who dominates the scene and therefore is at the center of that social space. But because social spaces are always shifting, are are the the um, social groupings are always changing otherwise you couldn 't have interaction between social groups. People are leaving one group and going to another. Um, the center of the scene will sometimes also change so a basic idea would be that you have let 's say um, I'm trying to think of an obvious version of this. You have Holmes is the center of all the Sherlock Holmes scenes, and Moriarty is the center of all the Moriarty scenes. And there are people who are going back and forth, and scenes and and social groupings are shifting, but there's also a basic definition of each social group. And one is the Holmes group, whoever happens to be with Holmes at the time, and the other is the Moriarty group, whoever happens to be with Moriarty at the time. Um, And there can can be shifting back and forth, but finally what you wait for until the end is Holmes versus Moriarty. And then that's when you get the convergence, when everyone comes together. In Macbeth, you could say that the official center of the war zone scenes is Duncan. Um, It's not so clear, although it becomes clearer, how how officially Macbeth is the center of those scenes or how even unofficially he is because he and Banquo come in as equals. Um, The witches say of Banquo that he is not so happy of Macbeth but also happier. And um, Macbeth having asides, that kind of makes him central, but Banquo commenting on his asides also tends to make Banquo central. So you could say there are three figures in the first let's call it larger, um, uh, not scene and not act, but larger conglomeration of scenes, all of whom are potentially the center of that conglomeration, the king, Banquo, Macbeth. Then there's this other conglomeration of scenes, which is done much more quickly, which is Lady Macbeth talking to the servants, preparing for, um, for the king to come, Then, in the scenes which center on Duncan, let's say, they stop centering on Duncan when he's killed. Then they can no longer center on Duncan. And Macbeth goes farther to the center. Still, Banquo and Fleance are out riding. They're talking. They're looking. They're going to walk to the castle. And so now there are scenes with Banquo and scenes with Macbeth. But then Banquo is killed. And so now Macbeth is the last Scot standing, in one, um, in in one conglomeration of scenes. In the meantime, what's happened is Macduff, who is present, who shows up and is present when Duncan's uh, murder is discovered, leaves, and now. The other conglomeration of scenes is going to center, at least in the audience's mind, it's not, as, it's not that Macduff has a huge role in the play. Line-wise, line he has a huge role in the story, but his, he doesn't have a huge number of lines. Macbeth, Bloom points out that, that a third of the play is spoken by Macbeth. That's a whole lot. Um, but uh, Macduff maybe has a tenth as many lines as Macbeth but nevertheless he's the center of the other scene. Malcolm isn't. Malcolm is the official center of the um of of Macbeth's opposition, but of, of of the legitimate party let's call them. But Macduff is the center of that other scene and so they're kept apart and they only finally converge and come together in the last act of the play, in the last um Uh, essentially the last scene of the play. And when they come together, the one or the other is going to have to lose. When Macduff says that he's been careful not to kill anyone, that he's going to put his sword away, either with Macbeth's blood on it or unbattered, that also makes it clear that the final opposition, the final uh, two social groupings that are going against each other, the two spaces that are converging into one, which is only going to have one winner, is between Macduff and Macbeth. And uh, on the Macduff side, part of what constitutes his scenes are the presence of young Seward, the presence of old Seward, the presence of Malcolm, um, and so on. On the Macbeth side, the only equivalent of that, since Lady Macbeth is now out of the picture, um, the other possible uh, dominator in that scene, but she dies. Uh, She kills herself. So the only other possible...
1: um, Have a great trip. Thank you. When are you leaving? Uh, I'm leaving. I'm actually leaving. I'm going home now and then taking the plane from there. So, So, yeah. Yeah, so tomorrow. All right. (laughs) But I'll be back on, I'll only be returning on Tuesday. Yeah, okay, well, have a great time. Thank you.
0: Have you been there before?
1: Yeah, like four years ago. (laughs) Okay, well, I hope it's great. Thank you.
0: Um, Is, so once Lady Macbeth is out of the picture, then it's really Macbeth, and part of what's going on, again, this this is following up on what you said, is that, if his if what space is in Shakespeare, um, the some of you know that the great one of the, the great philosopher and one of the founders of sociology, um, Georg Zimmel, had uh, wrote an essay called "The Stranger," and in that essay he has an amazing throwaway line, where he calls space at once, he says of space, space is at, space, space, you know, space, is the final frontier. Um, Is at once the symbol, spatial relations, he says, are at once the symbol and the condition for human relations. So spatial relations are both the symbol and the condition for human relations. They're the condition for human relations because we relate to each other spatially, because um, when people talk, they're face to face, or um, they're in each other's presence, or there is some version of being in each other's presence. And so human relations require space. You couldn't have human relations without space. That's why we call it cyberspace. If you have human relations over cyberspace, it's still a kind of space but it's also the symbol of human relations precisely because space is the way we differentiate ourselves from others, the way we differentiate people from other people. And that is an idea that is, that is central to Shakespeare, and to all scenic art, um, to all art which cross cuts, all narrative which cross cuts. And so what we're seeing happening to Macbeth is that his space is large when there are lots of people there whom he commands. And that would be something like the banquet scene when everyone is sitting there scared of him and having to have a good time. And the only person who doesn't show up for the banquet, to Macbeth's surprise, the um person who refuses to come to the banquet is Macduff. And that starts establishing Macduff as the center of a different space, the space that is counter to Macbeth's space. And for Macduff, that's a very small space. Um, it's really interesting to notice how much Shakespeare does a crypto-balancing of the Macduff story with the Macbeth story. That is to say, Shakespeare is really, really, really good at giving you the kinds of parallels that um, lots of playwrights, lots of writers give you where you, where you, see, a, where, where you see symmetry um, on both sides, let's say, of a conflict. Um, but Shakespeare is also really, really good at not making that symmetry obvious in any way because he doesn't want it to be obvious. Obvious symmetries are easy, but Shakespeare is actually quite amazing at making the symmetry something which an audience is not going to consciously see, but nevertheless they're going to be consciously affected by. Uh, To give uh, an example a fairly obvious one from King Lear, um, just to show how Shakespeare is uh, not making the symmetries too in your face, is the, the Gloucester story and the Lear story are obviously balance each other, but Lear has three daughters, Gloucester has two sons, so immediately there's difference within the symmetry. Lear's youngest daughter is the good daughter, Gloucester's older son is the good son. Later on, another um, Edgar is going to point out another symmetry when he compares himself not to Cordelia, but to Lear, and compares Gloucester, not to um, Lear, but to Goneril and Regan, and that symmetry might e- might in fact be the deeper one in King Lear. That comparison but it's certainly not the obvious one. Even though Edgar says it, it's not an obvious comparison. So here, the comparison are the two Macs, Macbeth and Macduff. And um, both of them are, are married to women who are strong and critical of their husbands. And in both cases, we see the women Alone in their own castles when their husbands are away. And in both cases, the women talk about their husbands when their husbands are away and give a pretty good, even if partial, a pretty good character analysis of their husbands. Um Then there's also the the idea that Lady Macbeth is a mother. I have given suck and know how tender it is to love the lad that milks me and Of course, Lady Macduff is a mother as because we see her son, and then it's um she and her babes are killed when Lady Macbeth therefore says <coughs> i would um Uh, uh, Smash my child's head If I'd sworn to do it That idea, the notion Of Lady Macbeth's child dying In a sense becomes real In the mirror image Of Lady Macduff's child dying And Lady Macbeth and Lady Lady Macduff They both die That's another thing That um, makes those two Um, Story similar Now obviously Lady Macbeth commits suicide Lady Macduff doesn't Obviously Lady Macduff's children Are present in the play Lady Macbeth's are not Um, And so it's not An obvious connection to make But How many actors do you need If you're staging Macbeth And you need people to Play Lady Macduff And Lady Macbeth Could double it? Yeah yeah, it's a clear doubling where you would, you would have... Remember that the female parts are played by boys. Um, Robert, As I say, Robert Arman um, does play Cordelia, but he could do anything. But generally, the female parts are played by boys. And the... Um, Bloom suggests, by the way, I hope you notice this, that Armin probably played the porter, which um, is almost certainly true. Um, and another reason to think that Shakespeare wrote those lines because Shakespeare loved writing for Armin Um, but there are not that many boy actors and it's a specialty and you can't do it for very long remember in Hamlet there's uh, Hamlet is worried that the boy actor who comes to Elsinore that his voice might have cracked and he's certainly gotten too tall for um, playing the roles that he used to play so it's really, really useful to double female parts especially. Not only female parts, but just as a matter of production, um, it's really, really um, useful to be able to double those parts. So it's almost certain that Lady Macduff and Lady Macbeth would be played by the same boy. Um, Plus, you have the witches and Hecate and so on. So there's a lot of demand on the company's resources. Yeah.
2: With like the doubling of like female roles, I'm not sure if this is true, but I've heard that the reason that like um, Lady Montague like dies kind of randomly off stage is because like everybody was already on stage, uh huh, and that like who like whatever boy was playing like right. Lady Montague was already like on stage as like Paris's page or Balthazar or somebody and like couldn't, yeah. couldn't do it
0: yeah that makes perfect sense yeah <laughs> <Which> so Shakespeare <laughs> will sometimes explain. Why someone's not on stage um, when what he would like to do is get everyone on stage, mm-hmm. um, but some t- you know for the final rousing final number, as it were. Um, <coughs> but I think that looking at um, the way the social spaces are changing, that Banquo is um, the becomes the other social space from Macbeth, but then he becomes part of Macbeth's social space when, he comes, when his ghost comes to the banquet. And um, on the one hand, it's horrifying for Macbeth. On the other hand, that's the moment when you could say <coughs> Macbeth decides not to be frightened anymore. And um, that, that's the last moment of horror, but his response, this is picking up from, from what we talked about on Tuesday, his response is, never shake thy gory locks at me. Um, that is, he starts giving the ghost, um, an order. He starts, um, he says, you know, don't blame me, I didn't do it, but he did do it. And then he says, well, don't you shake your gory locks at me. And then he talks to Lady Macbeth, and at the end of the scene, when he's talking to her, he is suddenly evincing a kind of courage, and also making a a porter-like joke, um, Lots of people think the Porter scene is the only funny scene in Macbeth, but I think that Macbeth's response to um, Banquo is actually pretty hilarious. In a, in, in, do you remember what it is? So um, he's complaining about modern times. You do remember? I remember
1: this.
0: Yeah, what is it? He says,
1: like, time was that when you killed a man, he would stay dead.
0: Yeah, yeah, what's going on now? The, the time of Ben, you know, let, let's find it exactly. Um
2: oh, when the brains were out,
0: the man would die. Yeah, I mean, you know, those were good days. When I was in college, when the brains were out, the man would die. Um, yeah,
1: it's on... Uh, Act three, three, four, 3, 4, right? Scene 4, line, around line 75. Line yeah. Right, you
0: have the heart, 223. <coughs> yeah, great. Yeah, so he says, well, look. Blood hath been shed ere now in the olden time. Ere humane statute purge the gentle wheel. I and since, too, murders have been performed. Too terrible for the ear... Okay, so lots of murders in the past, and I have a right to expect things to go the way they used to. The times have been when, that when the brains were out, the man would die, and they're an end. So that's how things used to be. But now they rise again with 20 mortal murders on their crowns and push us from our stools. This is more strange than such a murder is. So um, I really do love the fact that he's complaining here, um, that it's just not fair. It's like other people got to murder their way to power, and maybe they went to hell, but they didn't have their stup- those stupid ghosts shaking their gory locks at them um so what's going on here and um then Lady Macbeth kind of gets that this um the the th- this this Um, gallows humor that he's expressing here means that he's coming back to himself. That is, she then says, my worthy lord, your noble friends do lack you. And I think one way you could play that is that she laughs. She enjoys Macbeth's joke. And to um, play it that way, it would have to be played that Macbeth actually knows he's making a joke. Um, that he's saying, you know, ghosts today or murdered people today, um, and um, he's complaining that it wasn't like when, um, like when he knew the value of a buck. Um, but there is an interesting moment like that in Antony and Cleopatra which is that there's a moment when Antony gets really, really, really bad news and a servant points something out about the situation to him and Antony immediately responds to what the servant has said in a way that's surprising except we realize that the servant expected him to respond that way. Um, this is, uh, and I think it's just an amazing moment in Antony and Cleopatra. So we'll definitely talk about it. And um, I'm not sure how to flag it without giving you a spoiler right now. So I'll try to remember that that uh, that it's it's worth comparing to this. But this is a moment I think where Lady Macbeth really knows him, and it's a moment when um, he's making the kind of remark that. Uh, spouses make to each other When they know each other And the kind of jokes that they make to Each other and so she says Okay you're ready now um, To talk to your friends who are waiting For you my worthy lord your noble friends Do lack you and then he says I do forget oops And he turns to them and he's fine Do not muse at me my most Worthy friends I have A strange infirmity which is nothing to those That know me so we know that Macbeth Gets wrapped. um Come, love and health to all Then I'll sit down, give me some wine, fill full And then he sees Banquo again And um, gets angry and and frightened and crazy And um, let's go on a little bit further What man dare I dare So what's that going back to? I do all that become a man. I dare do, do all more. that may become a man. Who dares do more is none. Yeah, yeah. what well, we talked about Tuesday. What man dare, I dare. Approach thou, here he's talking to Banquo, like the rugged Russian bear, the armed rhinoceros, or the hurricane tiger. Take any shape but that, and my firm nerves shall never tremble. Or be alive again and dare me to the desert with thy sword, if trembling I inhabit then, protest me the baby of a girl. And, um, an interesting phrase. Um, what would it mean to be the baby of a girl I think you have a note on it yeah it says uh, it says like a
1: a girl's doll a toy
0: yeah so so this would be really a young girl who wouldn't have a, a human baby but would have a doll or a toy Um, That's probably the only way to make sense of it But it also should be preparing you subliminally For the idea of um, being of woman born Um, Being the baby of a girl Is um, uh, setting up the idea that's about to come about um, And repeated several times Which is the status of being no man of woman born So I'm not the baby of a girl Is what he's saying But then, notice what he's doing is he's complaining to Banquo. Even as he says, I'm terrified, he also says, avaunt and quit my sight. And that's something different from, oh no, I'm really frightened, what are you doing here? It's a step beyond never shake thy gory locks at me, thou canst not say I did it. Um, It's a step beyond that because now he is... Um, telling Banquo to leave, and what does Banquo do? At the end of this scene, at the end of this speech, he leaves. Yeah. So this is, Shakespeare has to um, make convincing Macbeth's transition from someone full of fear at the supernatural to someone who is contemptuous of the supernatural who can say contemptuously, I have supped full with horrors. And um, what that line means is that horrors don't horrify him anymore. So this, I think, is an important pivot in Macbeth's attitude towards the supernatural. Um, And he says, I am trembling. Take any shape but that. My firm nerves shall never tremble. Um, but the very moment where he's saying um, he's acknowledging that he trembles is also the moment when he is demanding that the ghost not take the shape of Banquo, that it not be that Banquo not come as a ghost. Um, Tiger, Does anyone uh, recognize another place where Shakespeare uses an almost identical phrase? So, the rugged Paris, like the Arcanian tiger, says Hamlet. And then he stops and says, No, no, tis not so. It begins with Paris. And then he says, The rugged Paris, he whose sable locks, black as his purpose, did the night resemble. So, the Hyrcanian tiger comes up in Hamlet, but then it turns out to be Hamlet is misremembering uh, the lines that he's trying to quote. And um, he's clearly not trying to remember these lines because Macbeth comes after Hamlet. But um, it's interesting how Shakespeare is um, using the same phrase, which was Hamlet's mistake, and now putting it into Macbeth's mouth. And um, um, at the moment when Macbeth, you could say, is becoming a little bit more Hamlet-like, a little bit more willing to confront the supernatural rather than to merely be fearful of it. Um, so then everyone leaves, and Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are left alone. It will have blood, they say. This is at line 20. It will have blood, they say. Blood will have blood. Stones have been known to move and trees to speak. Augurs and understood relations have, by maggot pies and choughs and rooks, brought forth a secret span of blood. What is the night? So he's saying, clearly, things are not over. Almost at odds with morning, which is which. And then he asks, How sayest thou that Macduff denies his person at our great bidding? And here, again, if you're playing Macbeth, you have to think how you're going to change his attitude. That having just seen, been terrified by the ghosts of Banquo, now he's pissed off at Macduff and he's not worried. He's angry. Um, did you send him, sir? I hear it by the way. But I will send. There's not a one of them, but in his house I keep a servant feed. So everyone, um, all, the, all the nobility in Scotland, they're spies there reporting to Macbeth. I will tomorrow, and betimes I will, to the weird sisters. More shall they speak, for now I am bent to know by the worst means the worst um, So now he's going to demand That the sisters tell him what's going on So just notice how much he's changed In the course of this scene I am in blood stepped in so far That should I wade no more Returning were as Tedious as go Or uh, Paraphrase that someone Yes who likes to turn back now Um it might be a little bit hard to make that make moral sense. What he's basically saying is, I've killed so many people that to stop killing would be as bad as to kill another set of people, just as many. The metaphor of, of being, um, of stepping through a river of blood is uh, not the correct metaphor he's not in the middle of the river of blood he's caused a river of blood to flow but he's just where he is but he lets this metaphor or he embraces this metaphor Um, and the idea of going or that goes back to um, um, I have no spurs to break the sides of my intent but only vaulting ambition which or leaps itself and falls on the other that is There's always some idea of reaching an opposite shore or an opposite side in Macbeth. Strange things I have in head that will to hand, which must be acted, ere they may be scanned. Um, Strange things I have in head that will to hand. What do you think that means? How do you paraphrase that line?
1: Like um, strange things I have in head that will to hand like thoughts I have of doing these um,
2: of doing these heinous things and that I have the ability to like that will to hand like I am able to
1: do them.
0: Yeah, it's not only going to be in my head, but I'm going to do something about them. It's not only that I have an idea for a paper, but I'm going to write the paper with a quill in my hand, um, or with both my hands on a keyboard. So he's going to make things that are in his head. They're going to now become things that are in um, in hand that he has in hand to use the um, the idiom. Um, where have we seen an example of that before? He even calls it a dagger of the mind. So he has a, <clears throat> he has a dagger in his head. Um, is this a dagger that I see before me? Um, and he thinks maybe it's a dagger of the mind that is a mere hallucination. He has a really interesting moment where he doesn't know which sense to trust, the sense of sight or his other four senses. Um, because he clutches the dagger, but he can 't it 's phantom so which which sense is deceiving him um, here now he 's going to integrate them. Strange things I have in head <coughs> that will to hand they will leave his mind and become part of his we- his weaponry, which must be acted ere they may be scanned. Um, So he's going to do these things before he tells her what they are. And so suddenly she's not running things. He is. You lack the season of all natures. Sleep. Come, will to sleep, says Macbeth. My strange and self-abuse is the initiate fear that wants hard use. We are yet but young indeed. So he's saying he sees himself losing fear, no longer being fearful. And seeing himself no longer being fearful is um, that is going to be the second half of the play um, or the rest of the play. Macbeth, um, as he says, almost losing the taste of fear that uh, fear is no longer an issue for him. Um, okay, let's go to um, Yeah,
1: the quick question about something we mentioned earlier. Yes. Um, in, I believe it's
0: Act 5, Scene 1, when Lady Macbeth comes in as the doctor and the gentlewoman are talking. Yes. What are we to make about her speech where
1: she references the original scene of knocking at the gate?
0: Yeah. So what do you want to make of it?
1: I mean, it seems like a nice homage to something that was already stated prior, uh-huh. but it just seems a little bit confusing because I don't know if
0: she actually witnessed the knocking on the gate. Well, remember, um, Macbeth says, wake, wake Duncan with thy knocking, I would thou couldst. That is, that the knocking occurs right after Macbeth has killed Duncan, and he's got to get into his nightgown uh, so that it doesn't look like he's already been around. So she hears the knocking then, too. And um, the, the, the porter's response to the knocking, it takes him a really long time to open the gate, um, but the knocking is something that, that the terror begins with. For us, you could say the terror begins when Macbeth hears the knocking and he doesn't know what it is, um, that as soon as he's killed Duncan... Um, there's this terrible unknown sound and it could be God for all he knows um, come come to punish him and obviously it isn't and that's not what would happen in a Shakespeare play but um, the knocking is uh, striking and it's also another reason to think that De Quincey's right about the underlining that moment and um and connecting it to the devils when the devil is imagining, when the porter is imagining um, all those uh, who might be knocking to go into hell. Um, but yeah, let's go to Act Five, Scene One. So um, another female character, clearly, um, you can double her with anyone except. Lady Macbeth, because she observes Lady Macbeth. But um, the doctor is there in the middle of, of a conversation, um, and what the gentlewoman is saying is that she's sleepwalking. Since His Majesty, at line, line four, since His Majesty went into the field, I've seen her rise from her bed, throw her nightgown upon her, unlock her closet take forth paper, fold it, write upon it, read it, afterwards seal it, and again return to bed, Yet all this while in a most fast sleep. Um, Why do you think she is doing that? Why is she writing, taking paper, folding it, writing on it, reading it, sealing it again? Yeah?
1: Is this a type of confession? Is that the kind of thing that she's doing? Like she's writing down her deeds, or at least in, in, metaphorically so.
0: Okay, so if we found that paper, what you would find, what would you, what do you think would be in it? Let's well, say you're doing the novel version of it. I that. don't
1: know for I I don't know for sure what would be in it, but the it very well since she is asleep, it very well may be gibberish. However, the act of writing on the paper and so like. Doing this subconsciously is perhaps like her her subconscious desire to um, confess to her deeds, or to own up to the things that she has done. That may or may not be true, but that's that's at least a surface level.
0: Okay, so so writing a confession
1: yeah.
0: um, is is uh, that's a possibility. It's what Richard II they demand of Richard II that he write out his confession, which he refuses. But the Um, or that he read his confession, which has been written out for him, but he refuses. Yeah, Cassie.
2: I think, um, I actually think that, like, a confession is the most, is, like, the most obvious interpretation, but I also do wonder whether um, you would think of it instead as Lady Macbeth wishing that she, like, responded to the initial letter that she received in the play differently. Like, I think that there's a very, like, in terms of, like, visual cues, Um, the first time we see Lady Macbeth, she's, like, reading a letter, and that's when she makes this decision to, like, support the killing Duncan plan instead of, like, uh, not supporting it, I guess. Um, and so I, like, I don't think that if you read the letter that she's writing, it would literally say, like, literally be a response to Macbeth saying, like, don't kill Duncan. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do think there's a lot, when she, like, shows up on stage, um... There's a lot of references to her thinking about, like, things that have happened in the play and wishing that they could have gone differently. Like, she says, right after she says the, like, the line we just read, um, she says, like, what's done cannot be undone. Mm -hmm. But then, basically everything she says is an attempt to, like, recreate things that have already happened And she never explicitly says that she wishes they'd gone differently, but I think that that's what the reference to the knocking at the gate gives you, too, is, like, here's another moment in the play that was, like, very pivotal, and if she'd done something different and, like, said something different to Macbeth, there might have been a different turn of action. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't necessarily think it's explicitly remorse, but I do think that there's, like, a a strong desire to at least explore what might have happened if she'd just, like, done the opposite thing and all of these opportunities to do the opposite thing.
0: Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tish, were you going to say Oh, start? no, simply similar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: yeah. Could it be potentially, like, something adjacent to, like, a suicide note? Because she doesn't come back, like, after she leaves at that point, she, like, doesn't come back. Yeah. Hmm
0: yeah so um
2: and like whether there, like there is a confession aspect within it, but mm-hmm. like the idea that like that's like what she wants to yeah. say
0: yeah yeah um certainly uh, we know that she we find out that she's killed herself, and the question is how people know, but maybe it's maybe it can be obvious um, the i it definitely seems to be the echo of Lady Macbeth entering with a letter the first time that we see her. And um, you could imagine it... um, You know, if you think of what the audience is seeing... um, Well, we're not seeing it, we're hearing it. Um, But if you think of what the audience is hearing, we're bound to be reminded of the letter that we first see her reading. And then... um, It has to be in some way or another the case that the um, writing expresses dissatisfaction. Uh, You may not have to go farther than that, but it's as though um, whatever revisionary action she's engaged in, and by revisionary action, I just mean here's Lady Macbeth with another letter so it's a revision of the first time we see her. So whatever revisionary act she's engaged in, it is a revision. It's uh, things are not the way they were when she fir- when she got that first letter and was so happy about it. And so somehow, you know, she's sleepwalking. It may be that there's nothing more to this than that she's going obsessively going over something that has led to disaster, something that she feels is disastrous. And uh, if you were dreaming in such a situation, you might dream of the letter or of writing a letter or of writing and reading what you wrote. And um, the actual words might not matter so much as that it's a kind of remorseful attempt rather than a repenting attempt to... Redo what's already been done, to be again what she was when we first saw her, um, all in a most um, in, a, in a most fast sleep. Um, so the doctor hopes that uh, she ge- that she's getting the benefit of sleep um, while watching, um, and in this slumbery agitation besides her walking and other actual performances what at any time have you heard her say that's her which I will not report after so what has the gentlewoman heard her say she won't repeat it so what does it have to have been yeah and it's in fact what we're going to hear her say in a little while um, and the the doctor blames the gentlewoman for hearing it. Uh, you've, you've heard what you shouldn't have heard. Um, so here she comes. Uh, this is her very guise, and upon my life, fast asleep, observe her stand close. How can she by that light? Um, why it stood by her. She has light by her continually, tis her command. So she's afraid of the dark now. You see her eyes are open. aye, but their senses are shut. What is it she does now? Look how she rubs her hands. It is an accustomed action with her to seem thus washing her hands. <coughs> I have known her continue in this quarter of an hour. So we're seeing a little bit, or Shakespeare has observed um, OCD, obviously, and here he's putting it to use. Um, it's always interesting to, to uh, see what it is that Shakespeare has observed. There is a branch of um, historical readings of literature which are, uh, um, which, which are medical investigations. Um, that is, you look for uh, the symptoms that are being described in works of literature that now we understand, or, or uh, medical professionals understand, what they're symptoms of. And um, so this would be an example of that. The most famous, I think, is um, do you know how this goes, biblical readers? If I forget the O Jerusalem, anyone know where that goes? May my right hand lose its cunning, my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. Oh. So what's being described there?
2: Oh, heart attack.
0: No? Oh, okay. No, my let, may my right hand lose its cunning, yeah.
1: Wait, tongue
0: cleave
1: to the
0: Cleave that is stick yeah. to the roof of my mouth. Seizure. Close. Stroke. A stroke. A left brain stroke, left hemisphere stroke, so mm-hmm. that um, your right hand gets paralyzed or you can't write and you can't speak. Um, so there in the Bible is uh, the symptoms of a, of a stroke are be described in the mm-hmm. Bible. Um, and um, it, it's always interesting to see that happening. People look at Rembrandt paintings and try to figure out um, what diseases various people who posed for him
1: had. Um, I mean, one of the most famous of all time is, is in Dickens, is in A Christmas Carol. It's, it's still to this day not well known what Tiny Tim actually had, but it's probably renal failure or rickets. Oh, really? Yeah, because, because it can't be, some people thought TB because of his coughing, but it wouldn't do that to his leg. Yeah. However, some, some type of organ failure, like liver or kidney failure, would, d- does have effect on the leg, usually in the form of uh, itching or, or some type of swelling. Huh. Uh, and so that, that very well may be that. And, and vitamin A deficiency. I think it's vitamin A deficiency, which is for kids who sometimes also have.
0: So maybe the goose has a lot of vitamin A and, and it's both, liver. Well,
2: both
1: of these things would have been um, common at the time. Yeah. For for him to have gotten so, like, it could have been many things, but those two things are probably the most likely.
0: Yeah. Um, interesting. No, I didn't know that about Tiny Tim. That's great. Um, and then he gets some goose liver, and that gives him vitamin A, and then he's good, right? Mm-hmm.
1: You know that? Uh, uh yeah. Liver is liver is largely composed of vitamin A. And yeah. Uh, a polar bear's liver is almost will kill entirely you. vitamin It'll A. It'll kill you. A spoonful you. of polar bear liver will have you die of vitamin A poisoning. Yep. So if you're ever uh, in the Arctic and you need to survive, don't eat polar bear
0: liver. Yeah. Um, the rest of the bear's okay. <laughs> uh, there you
1: go.
0: <laughs> All right. So um, here's a spot. Hark, she speaks. I will set down what comes from her to satisfy my remembrance the more strongly. And so now he's writing. Out, Dan Spot. Out, I say... One, two, why then tis time to do it? Hell is murky. Fie, my lord, fie, a soldier and feared. What need we fear? Who knows it when none can call our power to account? Yet who would have thought the old man to have had so much blood in him? So um, she's she's repeating it compulsively. She's going over it in her mind. She's telling Macbeth to do it, not to be afraid, Um, since none can call our power to account. But she's wrong. And then, who would have thought the old man to have had so much blood in it? Do you mark that? And then the thane of Fife had a wife. Where is she now? So who's the thane of Fife? Macduff. So now she knows what's happened to Lady Macduff. And here's a little. She goes into a kind of nursery rhyme to do that. The thane oh. of Fife had a wife. Where is she now? What will these hands near be clean? No more of that, my lord. No more of that. You mar all with this starting. So what's she thinking of that? Of at that moment? You mar all with this starting. No more of that, my lord. No more. So
2: when he, like, isn't, like, when he's, like, putting it off, and he's like, no, I can't.
1: Well, well, isn't the mar is, like, to make something worse, right? So, like, you mar all with this starting. Is that a reference to the banquet? Where yeah. He, where, he's, where, like, when you say, like, don't start, you mean, like, oh, don't get crazy. Don't
0: yeah. do this. Yeah, don't startle. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it's, so it's a word start as to be startled. Um, um, uh, the memory I started at, my starting moves your laughter. Uh, line from Browning. So um, she's going over the whole thing in her mind. And um, then the doctor gets pissed at the poor gentlewoman. Go to, you have known what you should not. And she point, <coughs> points out quite reasonably... She has spoke what she should not I am sure of that Heaven knows what she has known Here's the smell of the blood still All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand Oh, oh, oh um, Her heart is sorely charged, says the doctor um, And um, the one thing that um, I wanted to point out is... Um, where to go huh. Oh that's bizarre. Okay, I'll find it in a minute. Um, oh yeah, here. Um, out to end spot out I say line 35. 1 2 Why then tis time to do it. Why does she say one two? Yeah.
2: I have a note on
0: it. What's your note?
2: Um, It says um, the one two is a reference to presumably she is counting the strikes of the clock that she named on the night of the murder.
0: Right, and remember what Macbeth, remember what Macbeth hears before he goes off to kill Duncan. Here's the bell. Um, that is, he says, um, when my drink is ready, um, bid your mister strike the bell when my drink is ready, and then he hears the bell and says, hear it not, Duncan, for it is a knell that summons thee to heaven or to hell. Yeah.
2: Could we, like as we did when we talked about that line, connect it to the line in Hamlet where he says, is, is it Hamlet or is it, yeah, where he says a man's life is to say one. It's no
0: more than to say one. Yeah. And um, which we will then connect to Macbeth, Um, saying tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, where a syllable is saying one. Um, Time proceeds in syllables, in single syllables. So one, two would be a version of that as well. There are two, or you could say there are three ideas of time in Macbeth. Um, One is time as eternity. That is, time will go on forever, and that's the idea of the life to come, which Macbeth says, we'll we jump the life to come. That's the idea of the life to come. Um, a second idea of time is this bank and shoal of time. That is the seven years and the 21 years that Faustus gets, the 18 years historically that Macbeth gets. And um, you don't worry about eternity, you just worry about human time. And human time is short, but still measurable in years rather than um, in in instants. And then there's this finally, utterly reduced idea of time as the present instant, the present moment. Um, So that... Lady Macbeth can say, "I feel the future in the instant, that the only thing that there is is now. no other time exists. The only thing that there is is now." And that can mean that a good thing, that all that matters is what's happening right now. but it start and that in a sense, that's what it means to Hamlet. A man's life is no more than to say one. Um, All I need is the present. I don't need the future. Uh, No one needs the future. You don't own the future. All I need is the present. But for Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, that turns out to be the barrenness of the instant, that all there is is this single syllable, the one, two, and nothing more, the single syllable that will repeat the way she's repeating, will repeat itself endlessly. What's Macbeth's great demonstration of repetition? So what she's doing now, is she's repeating everything that's happened and going in in this um, either OCD but also PTSD way. Um, This is, uh, some of you may know that Freud wrote a book called Repetition, And um, he wrote it because what he was seeing were people who had survived trench warfare but had been traumatized um, by it, constantly going over and over and over and over again in their minds, the moment of trauma, the moment of um, when a shell went off and uh, they were injured or their buddies were killed or whatever. And instead of putting it behind them, they can't get rid of the thought. And um, for Freud, this was a puzzle, because his view of what the mind does is it maximizes pleasure. Um, So the name of this book on repetition is called Beyond the Pleasure Principle. And what's beyond the pleasure principle is why is the mind doing something where it's reliving trauma instead of trying to put it behind itself? And um, that's what Lady Macbeth starts doing, is she's repeating in her mind all the things that led her to this pass. And you could say, well, that's the pass she's in. The pass she's in is the pass of repeating all these things in her mind. Um, But the question is, why this repetition? So where does Macbeth engage in at least thinking about repetition? Actually, I already quoted it. Tomorrow
2: uh, tomorrow and yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. yeah,
0: tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. It's all the same. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. That's all there is, is the repetition of the present moment. Um, an okay version of it would be Groundhog Day, maybe. Um, but... Only okay, not great until until the last day in Groundhog Day. You guys know the movie, um, so if you don't, you should see it every day for the rest of your life. Um, the um, um, but the idea that nothing changes, that all there is is repetition, can mean um, that if your day's a good one, that would be great, but what Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are essentially feeling is that if you are suffering from repetition, and this would, be a, this would be what Freud was noticing also, it's because your day was a bad one, because each day is something that you would want to escape. What movie has the last line, Tomorrow's Another Day, anyone know? Gone with the Wind. Yes, Gone with the Wind. The uh, last line of Gone with the Wind is, yeah, things are really crappy, but tomorrow, that's not what she actually says. The things are really crappy part. Um,
1: well, the, last, the last line of it with it, the West Wing is tomorrow. Oh, is it? Yeah. Well, the last episode is called Tomorrow. Oh, that's cool. And when they're cool. on the plane after he's done being president, uh, uh, Abby asks him, what are you thinking about? And he says tomorrow.
0: Oh, that's good. Okay, so Macbeth is never thinking of tomorrow because tomorrow is the same as today. Um, To say tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day means that tomorrow will be just like today, that it's already tomorrow, that it makes no difference, that no tomorrow makes a difference. And um, it's all the repetition of the present moment, which far from being something that you're willing to give up eternity to enjoy is itself what eternity is going to look like. Just tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow. Um, so that idea of repetition—that's what um, Macbeth is. Well, he, do you do you remember? I'll just ask you this: What he begins to be a weary of when he's getting ready to die? What is it? That someone whispered it. So it's like, begin to be a weary of the sun. That is daytime. He's weary of daytime. He's weary of days. And um, that's an extraordinary line. Again, to be a weary of the sun. Okay, I'm going to give you a little bit more reading um, over one of the weekends of break is officially part of homework time. Um, and we'll spend one more week uh, on Macbeth uh, and then go to Anthony Cleopatra. Have a good break.
2: Professor, what's the deal with like the essays? Like a turn in whenever
0: you want to your credit card? No, you should. It, they'll, I'll, I'll send something over break also. But basically, right about Macbeth, it's due, um, I think I said March 7th, but I'll look on okay. the syllabus.